All right. So we have some questions here. Is it possible that all of this is evidence, perhaps not of our present day homo sapiens species, but other humanoid beings who came from other stars, millions, star systems, millions of years ago, the same way Sitchin believed the Anunnaki came in 200,000 years ago? Yes, that's possible. And if somebody reads my book, Forbidden Archaeology, they'll see that I just present the evidence. I don't really offer my own explanation for the evidence. And that was deliberate on my part. I wanted to save my explanation for another book because I wanted everyone who read the book to feel free to think about what their explanation would be. So over the years, I've seen a lot of people propose different explanations. One explanation is time travelers. You know, people from uh, the, the present or future who journey back in time and do things. Uh, so that's that's one category of explanation. The other is the extraterrestrial explanation of the kind suggested by the person who asked the question. And there are even other alternatives that I've heard. I can't remember all of them, but I, I definitely want people free to be free, feel themselves free to think about how they would explain the evidence and yeah. that that's so i'm happy that the author is considering that if anybody wants to see my explanation they can have a look at my book human devolution a vedic alternative to darwin's theory and with the skeletal remains that they find are they able to know exactly what humanoid it is i know you mentioned a couple of them but are there times where they can't figure out what ancient humanoid it is, or it could be Homo sapiens sapien, but they can't tell? Uh, well, there are a couple of things that can happen. Sometimes something can be really unidentifiable, and usually they'll say, you know, species unknown, you know, like they can't assign it. But in most cases, they've gotten so deeply into measuring these bones and not just measuring them and writing down the measurements, but doing high level statistical analyses of fragments of bones so that they're able to attribute them to you know, any animal or human population or population of hominins like extinct alleged ancestors of the modern human type so the problem however comes uh, as i tried to show in some of the cases i mentioned right at the beginning of the presentation where they're looking at something and with their latest high powered statistical analysis they conclude it is human, but we can't, but they write directly in their scientific reports 
this is exactly like modern Homo sapiens, but we can't call it that because of the geological age of the formation in which it was found. So that I think is the very interesting part where they identify something as human, but then explain it away. Right. And it's said, um, I believe it's conventionally accepted that Homo sapiens sapiens were have been here for 200, 300,000 years, right? And then yes, that's hom correct. Hominoids around 6 million years. So if that's the, the case, or when we're talking about the 5.8 million year old, like um, smoking gun of the fact that humans could have been there too, we have evidence that there are as prehistoric as maybe the species would have been when we first came onto the scene. So that's where the anomaly lies, correct? Yeah. If you've got a human-like print at 5.7 million years, they don't. They think that's before Australopithecus, even. You know that they think who was around six million years ago in Africa, Ardipithecus, they call it. Uh, it's uh, so yeah to to have something anatomically modern human at that time would be very damaging for their current consensus. Right. I will point out one interesting thing is that you know, my book Forbidden Archaeology was first published in 1993. At that time, scientists thought anatomically modern humans were less than 100,000 years old. Then by the 2000s, 2002, 3, 4, 5, they were beginning to think maybe 200,000 years. And now, today, they think 300,000 years based on some discoveries that have been made in Northern Africa and Morocco. So, uh, they've been going in the right direction. They've been taking small steps in the right direction. And it seems to be that every 10 years, they've been going back another 100,000. So we'll see what happens in coming decades if they keep heading, I think, in the right direction. But I think they've got a long, long way to go. But a journey of a thousand steps starts with one or two or three. So at least they're heading in the right direction. Right, right. So so it's not scripture, it's not written in stone that, you know, two hundred, three hundred thousand years ago they they keep finding evidence that it could go even more ancient. Because that was my next question. I was gonna ask that if you know we did evolve into Homo sapiens around three hundred thousand years ago, that would probably lean more towards like if we had Homo sapiens millions of years ago, to me, that's more of like a, you know, time travel or extraterrestrial question. If we can track back the, you know, the evolution of humanity to around 300,000 years ago. But what you're saying is they keep finding out that it's more, it's older than they originally thought. So it's just a matter of time. We just got to keep our minds open and just see what happens. Yeah. And then there's considerations that go beyond the stones and bones that get you into the nature of consciousness and mm -hmm. what's the actual purpose of our 
consciousness and our human form of life? Those are kind of questions that I get into in other books like Human Devolution, for example. But that's where all this naturally leads. You know, we're talking about stones and bones and how old they are. Uh, if, if it goes, if the stones and bones lead us to conclude that the current theories of human origins are, are in need of some drastic revision, we're going to have to think in what direction are those revisions going to go? And I think they're going to go in the direction of consciousness being something separate from matter. Mm -hmm. And that the purpose of our human life is to use our consciousness to elevate ourselves beyond the limitations of the world of matter. Mm -hmm. And that leads to some ideas like, well, what is the purpose of the universe then? If it has a purpose to give us the opportunity to educate and transform our consciousness, and that is best done in the human form of life, that would explain why humans have been around since the beginning, because we're not in an accidental universe. But that takes us far beyond the stones and bones and exact, but that's where it all leads eventually. Right. Grace is asking, have you ever found any evidence of extraterrestrial interaction with the human race? Um, yes, I don't necessarily talk about it in my book, Forbidden Archaeology. But uh, <clears throat> say you go to Java, which I did. I was invited once to come to Java and give talks about my books, Forbidden Archaeology and Human Devolution. So in, in, in my days off and free time, different people in Java would take me in Bali, actually, not Java. Bali and Indonesia. Sorry. So Bali. So they would take me to different places in Bali, like different temples. So there's one temple, Temple of the Moon. And in this temple, they have, you know, like in a Balinese temple, you've got a kind of compound, and you've got several pyramid like structures made of wood mostly. And on the top of one of these pyramids, they had this huge drum. You know, it's like about 10 feet long. And the head, head of the drum was, you know, maybe five or six feet in diameter. And this huge brass drum is sitting on the top of one of these pyramid-like temple structures that were part of this Balinese temple complex. And according to the temple histories, that object is an extraterrestrial object. It came from the moon, which they believed was an inhabited place. 
you know, so I kind of have a, an expanded conception of what extraterrestrials actually are. Uh, for some people, they're thinking flesh and blood creatures like us from some other planet, Earth-like planet in our galaxy. Uh, I think that's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. I think beings that in traditional cultures are called jinn and angels and things like that, more subtle beings from other dimensions of reality are included in the extraterrestrial concept. So according to their cosmology yeah, in, in Bali, yeah, there are beings associated with the moon and the other celestial bodies. And one of these extraterrestrial beings brought this drum. And you know, so there are things like that. And then you can go to like the Ellora Cave Temples in northern India. It's like this huge mountain of granite or some other hard rock. And people have, ancient people have carved huge temples into the rock. Another place you find things like that is Petra in the country of Jordan. But you know, at, at the Ellora Cave Temples in India, some on some of the carvings of these rock-cut temples, you, they've got huge galleries in them. You can rooms. You walk inside, all columns, all carved from the solid rock. It's pretty amazing. But some of the panels, sculpture panels, show vimanas, spacecraft from other dimensions of reality hovering over uh, human populations that are kind of pointing up, and looking at them, and things like that. So yeah, you, you do find archeological evidence for contact with extraterrestrial beings. You mentioned in your book, in reference to Vedic knowledge, you, do you think that beings like Rama were real? If so, was he a humanoid being from another dimension, star system? What are your thoughts? Uh, I think they are real. You know, from, you know, the accounts come from Vedic historical texts like the Puranas and the Itihasas, among which one of them is called the Ramayana. It's all about Ram. Uh, Ram, in terms of theology, is known as an avatar or incarnation of Vishnu, who is the supreme god of the Vedic tradition, at least according to the school of thought that I follow. So Rama illustrated the life of a member of the royal order. He was in 
the solar dynasty, the Surya Vamsa. And he underwent many trials in, in which involved battles with forces representing the forces of darkness in the universe. So you, some people say that Star Wars, you know, the Star Wars series of films were inspired by uh, George Lucas and his study of ancient wisdom traditions, which speak about celestial wars between the forces of darkness and light, like, you know, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, and other other uh, epics from ancient India. So, yeah, I think it was a real personality. But there we have to perhaps expand our conception of what real is. You know, if we take a, a strictly materialist view, these things may seem like fantasy or inventions. If we take a consciousness-based view of the universe, then that opens up lots of new possibilities for appreciating what is real and what is and how that those realities are relevant to us in our lives today. Growing up in you know, Hindu myself, Indian Hindu, um, I was I had to go to Sunday classes and I had to learn um, the Bhagavad Gita and learn hymns and all that. And as I was going to all these courses and classes, I was being told different things about the antiquity of India and the information there. I was told that Vedas were written 100,000 years ago. Then I was told 10,000 years ago. And then I did my own research and, you know, conventionally said that maybe around 1,900 BC, the Vedas were written. But I'm trying to connect some dots here. So I'm just giving you this information. Is there anything that you could tell me on what you believe is the evolution of, you know, current day India and the modern Hindu religion? Uh, yes. Uh, it's... Any big religion is actually quite diverse. And that's why I call my book Human Devolution, not the Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory, but a Vedic alternative. Uh, so within Hinduism, the Vedic tradition generally, we find there's diversity. There's also some unity. So sometimes it's said there's a principle of unity and diversity, but uh, it's diverse. You know, you know, if you study the Vedas very carefully, it says even right from the beginning, there are sad darshan, six darshans or ways of looking at the world. One of which is, uh, a basically atheistic, materialist, reductionist view. Uh, you know, there are philosophers who study in that way and conclude in that way. Then there's other groups of philosophers who are 
more or less dedicated to consciousness, a consciousness or spiritual-based worldview, which is adwaita, undifferentiated, meaning everything is one. Then there are other philosophers, and I, I kind of put myself in this school, who say, yes, everything is consciousness-based, but it's simultaneously one and different. You know, so there can be, yes, we're all one in the sense that we're like each other. We're not radically, so radically different that we can't understand or appreciate each other. Yet at the same time, we're all individuals. We're one and different simultaneously. So you know, there are different schools of thought, and they may have different ideas about the age of the Vedas. But if we actually look at what the Vedas themselves say, they say they're apavrushaya, which means they aren't composed at some particular point in history. Uh, said that the Vedas are the breath of God. Uh, that means they exist before the creation of the universe, which is governed by space and time and things like that. So the Vedas ultimately come, they're, they're not ever created or composed. They're manifested in human society at particular times, but their own nature is from a timeless eternal realm beyond the world of matter with all its changes. Thank you. That's that's how I deal with it. Thank you for that. Next question here. How would you describe the seemingly constant cycles of evolution, devolution, evolution, devolution? Why can't we stay in a higher level of consciousness? Uh, we can. It just depends where we direct our attention. If we direct our attention to things that are caught up in the cycle of time, then we see that everything has a beginning and an end. So it, it's if we're if if we put our attention on those temporary things, then we're going to find ourselves involved in that temporary flow of, of, of events where things pass away and come into being, pass away, come into being. So uh, the basic idea of yoga and meditation is to focus the attention on the things that are timeless, that are beyond the destructive force of time. So that is, if one can focus one's attention on what is permanent, then one's, one's whole being follows one's attention and awareness and becomes absorbed in that. So, that is the, the real purpose of human civilization, 
which has been forgotten by the dominant forces in the world today. Are you aware of the concept of cycles within cycles? I've, I've heard that, you know, let's say the Kali Yug, um, uh, you know, all the ages, Bronze Age, Silver Age, that that actually exists within the larger cycle that also has a golden age. So you can have a Kali Yug within a golden age. You can have a Bronze Age within a golden age. Have you ever heard anything like this? Is there any truth to this? Yeah, we're getting... Uh... And this is like what I said, we start out with stones and bones and it leads to so many other things. So, yeah, uh, the, the school of thought that I follow says that, yes, there's a cycle of yugas, like Satya Yuga, Treta Yuga, Dwapara Yuga, Kali Yuga. Satya Yuga is an age of peace, Everyone is living very simply, very naturally. They're not divided up into different classes. Everybody is more or less equal. The opportunity for everyone to be involved in yoga and meditation is there. Everything is perfectly arranged for self-realization and consciousness elevation. And then the next stage, things get worse by let's say 25 percent you know in other words people start dividing themselves up into different groups and classes uh, life becomes a little more difficult you got to do some hard labor to get the necessities of life you have to begin processes of ritualistic religious practices but still, things are basically on the right track. And then the next stage, things get worse by 25%. And you, know, you get large-scale conflicts, things like that. But still, there are some forces of good, some forces of not so good. You know, just depends upon where you are. And then in the next stage, which is the age we're in now, it's the Kali Yuga. It's said that's an age of increasing environmental and social disturbance, which we actually kind of can see happening all around us. But it's said, according to the teachings of the line of gurus that I've associated myself with, that for 10,000 years from now, about 500 years ago, and for the next 9,500 years, even though it's Kali Yuga, there will be a chance like to, to make the world like it was in Satya Yuga. And then after that 10,000 years, then Kali comes back into, the age of Kali comes back into full force. It's kind of just like when winter's coming on in a temperate zone country, when winter's coming on, sometimes you get a few warm days 
you know, it's cold, and then you get a few warm days. And then after that, you know, the heavy part of the winter comes. So we're in a situation like that right now, where although the general trend of the age is downward, it's now possible for individuals and groups of people to make make their world pretty much like Satya Yuga, the golden age. When you look at the um, the world through these cycles and these ages, it's very hard to judge people, right? Because you're seeing like, we're saying like more of this energy comes to the earth. And so it just, it shows that we're a product of these cycles as well as our own collective intention. But I feel it really proves even more that the reason we're here is to experience right because why else would we be going through these ages unless we were it was a part of the plan originally what are your thoughts on that yeah well i think we're the uh <clears throat> i think those who were more intelligent they've already gotten out of this cycle business mm. they've transcended to a level where that's no longer necessary uh, so I think in each age, things, there's opportunities for realization, which has to be given, you know, one has to decide to do it freely. It's not something that's going to be forced on anyone, on any particular conscious entity. You know, if someone is satisfied with life in the world of matter and they want to continue pursuing it and don't really see the advantage of transcending it then they'll have that opportunity but they'll have to go through the seasonal differences of the different ages and in the cycle. Uh, so it depends on, you know, you say the powers that are on the higher level, not necessarily the powers that are in charge of today's economy and political system, but those who are in charge on the larger level they give every every conscious self the ability to freely choose where they're going to put their energy and attention. So up to each one of us. Definitely, I resonate with that for sure. Okay, Susan is asking, do you have any information about archeological findings in the deep digs of Antarctica ice? Uh, I've heard about such things. They're very difficult to trace to the actual source, but it, you know, the actual sources, you know, to find the individuals or scientists that have actually made the reports. And it's a little bit complicated because there are certain websites 
that if you look carefully at them, they say, you know, they present themselves as news organizations, but they, if you carefully read their, about us, you see, the reports, they'll say, the reports on this site are fictional. Yeah, you know, if you read the fine print. So that, that complicates things a little bit. But just in general, uh, Antarctica millions of years ago was free from ice and it was temperate. It wasn't like freezing cold all the time like it is in most places in Antarctica today. There were forests, there were animals, plants, birds, and there are reports of discoveries of archeological remains. In other words, remains of humans who may have existed either before the ice came or afterwards. You know, they continued existing during the, the presence of the ice somehow or other. So there are reports like that, but they're very difficult to verify. Say in terms of the discoveries for evidence for extreme human antiquity, you'll see I was able to go into, you know, if you looked at the presentation slides, you'll see there are cases like the California gold mine discoveries, the artifacts of Carlos Ribeiro, where I was actually able to go into the museums, find the artifacts that are mentioned in the reports, study them, you know, verify that they exist and things like that. So it's very difficult to do that with the reports coming out of Antarctica. You know, just in principle, I don't have any objection to such things, but I would like myself before I start propagating them, be able to verify at least some of them. You know, it's not that everything has to be verified, but if I were able to do that, I'd be more comfortable about putting them out. So that's definitely. Okay, so we have two, let me see how many questions we have left here. One, I think we have three, two questions left. Okay. Joseph Campbell had assumed the time cycles of hundreds of thousands of years found in Vedic texts were symbolic, as he did not have the understanding that it was a literal interpretation of time. How did those who wrote the Vedas acquire this knowledge of time and ancient history? Um, the Vedas are purporting or claiming to be given, giving evidence that's beyond history. So, I mean, ultimately, you know, that's what the claim is. So how to verify that is a question. It depends on what one takes as evidence. 
So the Vedic epistemology says there's basically three paths for knowledge. One is called pratyaksha in the ordinary sense of the word, meaning what's available to our senses. Of course, as human beings, we only live for about a hundred years of our time, a hundred solar years, which is not a long time. So we can't observe ourselves uh, very, very, a very big span of time. Like I was born in the mid 20th century. And I'm now entering the last part of the life of, of this embodiment. And, you know, then, so what, what's my experience or anybody's real experience? You know, they can only hypothesize uh, about the past or the future, you know, by making certain assumptions and things like that. And that, that making of assumptions is what's called anumana or hypothesis. If, you know, I see a tree and I assume that <clears throat> each ring in the tree represents a year and I assume that somebody didn't recently make this tree, then by counting the tree rings, you know, I can say something about how many years the tree lived. And a tree will live longer than I do or any human will. So then making that assumption, you can say, okay, there's a larger period of time available. Then you make further assumptions about the nature of radioactivity and its presence in different minerals and what the half-lives of this these radioactive elements are in different things. And then you can make assumptions about larger uh, periods of time. But that's always going to change, you know, based on who's making the assumptions and what conclusions they come to. You know, that's why if you study the scientific ideas about uh, history and time, how old the universe is, it's always changing. And you look over the past several hundred years at the estimates for the age of the universe, you know, ranging from 5,000 years to what is it, they now say about 13.5 billion. You know, 50 years from now, they'll have a different idea. So then the third source of knowledge, according to the Vedic epistemology, is called the Shabda Praman, means the testimony of, of a reliable witness. So this assumes, again, that there is a supreme conscious intelligent being who has set up the whole system and will know everything about the system that has been set up. You know, the cosmic manifestation will know everything about it and is capable of communicating 
to humans on our level of reality, whatever is advisable for them to understand and know about the cosmic manifestation. So it is from that source that we get the information about the time cycles. And so it's from a, a different source of knowledge than, say, Professor Campbell was applying. So. Thank you. Okay, we have here another question from Grace. Have you researched the presence of giant skeletons found in many places on the Earth? And if so, what do you think their origins are? Uh, yes, I'm aware of that. And there we run into the same problem that we encounter with the evidence for archeological discoveries beneath the ice caps in Antarctica. Namely that it, although many credible reports are there of the presence of giants, it is very difficult to verify them. I mean, personally, on the basis of the Vedic histories, I accept the presence of giants, by which I mean large-sized human beings. And for me, that means 10 feet tall or taller, because there are lots of people in the world today who are seven feet tall, almost eight feet tall. They play on the basketball teams all over the world, for one thing. Uh, and there are even a few people eight feet tall. I think there's one person living today from Mongolia, nine feet tall but there's nobody 10 feet tall or taller. So uh, there, so although you can find many reports of discoveries of large size human beings, if you try to track them down, if you try to track them down in, verify their existence, it's very hard to do. There is one case that I find very credible. It's a discovery that was made at a place called Castle Now, C-A-S-T-E-L-N-A-W in France. I think it was early in the 20th century or the late part, very latest part of the 19th century, there was a French archaeologist or anthropologist named Lapouge, L-A-P-O-U-G-E. And he found at this place called Casonau in southern France, some human bones, not a complete human skeleton, but he found the femur or thigh bone of a human being. And if an anthropologist has a, a complete femur or thigh bone, 
then by measuring the length and dimensions of the femur, they can tell how tall the human being was that had that, that femur, a femur of that size. And the one that was found at Castlemau, the femur, human femur found there, the person would have been, according to the reports that were published in scientific journals early in the 20th century, those reports say that a human being with a femur of that size would have been over 11 feet tall, which I would consider to be a giant. So that is one of the cases that it might be possible to actually track down those hum large size human bones that were found in France. You know, I would say that that is a good candidate case. Um, and as I said, these photographs of the bones were published in scientific journals, things like that. So I think they, those bones must be around somewhere in some museum collection in France. So yes, I accept giants existed. The Vedic texts talk about these things. But I would just like to see somebody verify at least a couple of these discoveries, and that'll add credibility to the many other reports of such discoveries. Beautiful. Michael, that's all the questions we have. Thank you so much for Thank you. being here. Thank you for your work and truly inspiring not only many people I know, but inspiring me for throughout the years. I'm just really honored to have had you on this platform and um, I'm excited to see what you're going to come up with next. Great. It's wonderful being here with you. I think we're all part of a, a big movement mm -hmm. that is looking for viable alternatives to some of the current ideas and aspects of our current worldwide civilization. So Good to be with you. Thank you for providing such a nice platform for myself and other researchers and uh, for facilitating the involvement of so many others who are interested in these topics. It's can't do it alone. Yeah. Yeah, we got to do this together. And it truly yeah. is the greatest story ever told. It's the story of how, where every other story came from. <laughs> how we got here in the first place, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I don't claim to have a monopoly on truth, but I'm just no. throwing in my two cents. And if anybody finds it of value, they can take it up and incorporate it into their thoughts. So thanks again, Neil. And thanks Thank everyone you. for listening to a few words about forbidden archeology span other topics. Thank you, Michael. Take care, brother. We'll be in touch soon. Okay. Bye-bye.